Welcome to the DC Debrief for Friday, June 23rd, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up on the debrief, Hunter Biden pleads guilty, but House Republicans aren't satisfied yet. The White House welcomes a controversial ally to Washington. We'll talk to Erfan Nurudin from the Atlantic Council about India's state visit. The one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision is coming up. Where do things stand now? And we'll talk all things politics with Nathan Gonzalez of Inside Elections. That's all ahead on this week's DC Debrief. But just a reminder, friends, if you're amenable, tell a friend or family member about the DC Debrief. Help them put it in their phones if you have to. Grab their phones, show them how to get it up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, whatever podcast app they use. It's very easy to follow the show and subscribe and leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts if that's your app of choice. Thanks very much for, for taking the time to do that. All right, with that out of the way, let's get Get to the debrief. Number one, Hunter Biden pleads guilty. The son of President Joe Biden will plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges of failure to pay in 2017 and 2018 and the combined tax liability roughly $1.2 million over those two years. Uh, Biden plans to also admit to illegally possessing a weapon following the purchase of a handgun back in 2018. In all, prosecutors would recommend two years of probation as well as a diversion program for the gun charge. If Hunter Biden successfully meets the conditions of the diversion program, the gun charge would be removed from his record at the end of that program. So does this end the criminal investigation against Hunter Biden? His lawyer, Chris Clark, was on a number of uh, cable news shows this week and said that he believes that it does, although DOJ officials say investigations continue. Regardless, it's unlikely to end the investigation that House Republicans have been doing, specifically the House Oversight Committee, investigating both Hunter Biden's actions and the the committee's claims of illegality by Joe Biden and other members of the Biden family. And specifically taking a look at the charges and the plea agreement, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy continues to insist that there are two versions of justice. One for Republicans like Donald Trump and one for Democrats or at the very least family members of Democrats like Hunter Biden. Look outside the Capitol, you see the Supreme Court and you see a statue of Lady Justice. She has a scale that's supposed to be equal, but she's wearing a blindfold. I wonder if there was a blindfold on to the prosecutor when it came to Hunter Biden, but they didn't know his name, they didn't know who his father was. Would he get a slap on the wrist? Or would, or would, or would this be actually doing jail time. That's the difference. Biden's attorney, Clark, disagrees with that assertion, of course. I've heard Speaker McCarthy say a lot of stuff I don't agree with. There was no basis for what he said, and he's not right. And as for the president, he hasn't said much about this after the plea agreement made news uh, in the middle of the week, but uh, the only thing he has said publicly is that he is standing by his son. I'm very proud of my son. Now, it should be noted that two whistleblowers, a 14-year IRS agent named Gary Shapley and another unnamed agent, told Congress in private conversations that IRS investigators recommended charging Hunter Biden with much harsher crimes, including tax evasion for more years and other felonies. Shapley told members of Congress he had evidence showing the Justice Department showed preferential treatment to Biden and slow-walked 
the investigation. He also says that he and the entire IRS team were later removed from the probe. We're going to talk with Nathan Gonzalez about the Hunter Biden story coming up here in a few minutes on the debrief. But uh, that's the skinny and all the latest uh, involving Hunter Biden and the plea agreement from earlier this week. Number two. John Durham Palooza on Capitol Hill. Now, for those of you who don't know who John Durham is, he's the special counsel that was appointed by President Trump when Trump was in office. This was near the end of his presidency to investigate the Justice Department's investigation of alleged ties between Russia and the president. In other words, uh, this special prosecutor wanted and was investigating the investigation of what Trump called the Russia hoax. Durham spoke to uh, the House Judiciary Committee in a public setting on Wednesday. Now, remember, Durham released a report back in May that was highly critical of the Justice Department's handling of the case. He says that they essentially pursued the case as if they believed it was true rather than taking a more skeptical and slower approach that they rushed to investigate him. However, he did not find any widespread abuse or criminal activity by anyone at the DOJ. And that was contrary to what Trump and some of his allies had alleged. Now, Durham defended his probe in the hearing and said his findings were serious, that it showed flaws in how the Justice Department handled the Trump-Russia investigation. As we said in the report, um, our findings were sobering. I tell you, having spent 40 years plus as a federal prosecutor, they were particularly sobering to me. The problems identified in the report are not susceptible to overnight fixes. As we said in the report, They cannot be addressed solely by enhancing training or additional policy requirements. Rather, what is required is accountability. And Republicans in the hearing praised Durham and his findings, saying his report proved the FBI acted hastily and did not act impartially, that they were looking for ways to incriminate the former president and prove a direct link between Trump and the Russians that did not exist. Democrats, on the other hand, called Durham a conservative partisan eager to defend Trump and his actions. And they also shot holes in the three prosecutions that he did bring forward. Mr. Durham's investigation operated as headline generator for MAGA Republicans. But at the end of the day, Mr. Durham never found what he was looking for. He cannot dispute a single conclusion in the Mueller report. He cannot prove a magnificent deep state conspiracy. And he cannot say that the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign's many ties to Russia never should have happened. A very interesting hearing uh, with John Durham on Capitol Hill this week. Number three. Courting India. This week, President Biden welcomed Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi for a state visit. This is the first state visit for an Indian head of state since 2009. The move is aimed at helping to further develop a relationship between the second most populous country in the world, India, and the United States. Now, it should be noted that the U.S. once revoked Modi's visa on the grounds that he was a Hindu nationalist guilty of violating religious freedom during riots in the Indian state of Gujarat that killed more than a thousand people, most of them Muslims. And Christians were, a lot of Christians were in opposition to his White House visit because Christians have been persecuted in India and it's been growing since the 2000s. Recently, the violence continued. Uh, there was an incident uh, between May 3rd and May 5th of this year where mob violence claimed 75 lives and displaced 35,000 
6,000 people, according to Manipur's government. And there's a large Christian population in the city of Manipur. Um, A pastor who ministers to northeastern Indian Christians in Delhi believes that 65,000 people have fled some internally, others across the border to Myanmar, and that more than 100 people, 100 Christians, have been killed. Now, in the Rose Garden on Thursday, Biden said the two men did discuss recent human rights abuses. It's a common Democratic character of both our countries that and our people, our diversity, our culture, our open, tolerant, robust debate. And I believe uh, that we believe in the dignity of every citizen. We have always proved that democracy can deliver. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, gender. There's absolutely no space for discrimination. The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, USERF, also had some things to say ahead of his visit. In a statement release uh, saying that uh, uh, the Biden administration has a unique opportunity to explicitly incorporate religious freedom concerns into the two countries' bilateral relationship. Uh, This is from Commissioner David Curry. He said, it is vital the U.S. government acknowledge the Indian government's perpetration and toleration of particularly severe violations of religious freedom against its own population and urge the government to uphold its human rights obligations. USERF has also recommended that the State Department designate India as a country of particular concern They've, and they've been doing this every year since 2020 for what they say is systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom. Um, I'm going to be joined again by a guest for a deep dive into this visit coming up in a few minutes as well. Number four. Censoring Schiff and impeachment divisions. It was a busy week on the House floor as Republicans were trying to get a a number of things done against a a couple of high-ranking Democrats, and it was a bit chaotic. I mean, there was a—so Republicans held a vote to censure censure Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff and— after the vote came down, as, as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was, was reading the vote, uh, it definitely got a little bit chaotic on the House floor. Give it a listen. On this vote, the A's are 213 and the nays are 209, with six answering present. The resolution adopted. Without objection, the motion to consider is relayed on the table. Democrats crying out shame, shame, shame after House Republicans voted to censure California Democrat Adam Schiff over comments he made several years ago regarding former President Donald Trump's ties to Russia. Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene slammed Schiff. She was not the only one saying that he lied when he claimed there was evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia during the 2016 elections. Adam Schiff lied to the American people by leading the fake Russian witch hunt against President Trump. He weaponized the House Intelligence Committee to abuse all principles of due process and perpetuate the lies of Russia collusion. Now, Schiff was defiant in the face of the GOP-led vote. He said he will wear his censure like a badge of honor. Donald Trump is under indictment for actions that jeopardize our national security, and McCarthy would spend the nation's time on petty political payback thinking he can censure or fine Trump's opposition into submission. But I will not yield. Not one 
inch. Now, it should be noted that the censure carries with it no real penalty, but he did become just the third lawmaker in the last 20 years to be censured. So I guess uh, he made a little bit of history, I guess, uh, is, is one of the ways to look at it. But Schiff was not the only high-ranking Democrat targeted by House Republicans this week, with two Republican members of the House introducing articles of impeachment against President Biden, one of them Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. And his failure to uphold the rule of law President Biden has demonstrated that he will neglect his duty to execute the office to which he has been entrusted, violating his oath to the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. However, other Republicans in the House, most Republicans in the House were not on board with this, even though Boebert, the way she crafted this legislation, it was designed to get it past all of the different procedural things that can prevent a, a, a resolution like this from hitting the House floor, because this is not the first impeachment uh, vote that House Republicans have sought or tried to bring to the House floor. But she was able to craft it in a way that it got around a lot of those different things. And she says that the and and what Speaker McCarthy ended up was, was essentially saying is that we don't want to hold this vote right now because it could force some Republicans in some districts that President Biden won in 2020 to cast a vote that could put their seats at risk and therefore put the House majority at risk. But they also said they want to let these Biden investigations that the Oversight Committee is doing play out before going this route. Now, the House did vote on Thursday to pass a rule that would send Boebert's resolution to committee which effectively pauses a move to bring this motion to the floor that would have forced members to vote on whether to impeach President Joe Biden. So for now, those those Republican members that are in those tough districts for whom this would have been a tricky vote, they get a little bit of a stay of execution there. The, the, the rule was passed along party lines, so most Republicans just did not feel like this was a vote that they wanted to take at this time. Number five. Child tax credits coming back. Maybe. We'll see. There are some things that happen in Congress from time to time that are mainly for show or for preening, you know, things of that nature. Actually, it's a lot of what we're saying. Matter of fact, the, the impeachment proceeding that we were just talking about, one could argue, knowing that it would never get to a, a trial in the Senate, knowing that it wasn't going to go anywhere. So a lot of these things are to force members to take a side on something. But every once in a while, stuff actually gets done in Congress. And it appears that one of the things most members of Congress agree agree on is bringing back the pandemic era child tax credit. So as the year goes along, Republicans and Democrats in the House are going to have to get together on a budget. There, there are going to be negotiations on what spending to cut, uh, what programs to to approve of. And these negotiations are ongoing and will on, be ongoing for the next few weeks and months. Now, Democrats want to bring back the child tax credit, which allowed parents to get up to $300 a month per child, and it was part of Biden's COVID relief bill. Democratic lawmakers say that it cut child poverty by as much as 30%. And while Republicans aren't generally anxious to do more spending, this is one thing that they don't appear to mind a whole lot, and they see it as a good bargaining chip to use to try and get Democrats to go along with some of the spending cuts elsewhere that they may want to enact. Now, there are a number of states that, once the child tax credit lapsed, have gone about imposing their own child tax credit. California, Colorado, 
Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, and Vermont, all Democratic states have passed their own programs, which offer similar credits for families. But there are Republicans who would be on board, especially if they can use it as a bargaining chip. Uh, Governor Greg Gianforte of Montana has introduced efforts to try and bring back some form of a child tax credit. You have Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio saying that this is one of the few issues of tax policy where there's some bipartisan agreement. Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana said there could be some Republican interest in a child tax credit if it's properly constructed and properly sized in whatever tax package package they agree to. Now, will it continue to be $300 a month? That number may change when it's all agreed to, if it's agreed to as part of a larger deal, because at $300 a month, it would cost $105 billion a year, an area, so, I mean, that's just, that's, that's for, for Republicans who are desperate to cut spending, that might be too high a price tag. But if you're looking for different things that can happen in Congress that could actually affect your wallet, your pocketbook, this is an area where Congress might be able to come together on something and put money back into the pockets of American parents and could also help lead to a spending cut deal later this year. So we'll see how that all plays out. But uh, the child tax credit might be something that could come back for 2024. Number six, Supreme Court ethics reform. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee say they will mark up legislation after the July 4th recess on Supreme Court ethics legislation. This comes in the wake of another report by ProPublica that claims serious ethical violations by another conservative justice, this time Samuel Alito. You'll remember a couple weeks ago, they came out with a bombshell story that got everybody upset, people on the left anyway, um, got upset and conservatives racing to defend uh, Judge Clarence Tom- Justice Clarence Thomas after this report appeared to, this report said that Justice Thomas appeared to take uh, very expensive gifts and and travel from a a wealthy Republican donor. Um, And so now this ProPublica report alleges that Justice Alito benefited from private flights and a fancy vacation from someone who later had business come before the Supreme Court, and Alito did not recuse himself. Now, Alito got ahead of the story by a day. He wrote an op-ed before the story came out defending himself, claiming the gifts he accepted were not ethical violations. Conservative commentators are also hitting back at ProPublica, noting that they are a left-wing news organization paid for by leftists. That's the argument that's coming out from conservatives defending Samuel Alito. Senators Dick Durbin and Sheldon Whitehouse, both Democrats, say if Chief Justice John Roberts is not going to act, they will. And that the highest, they say the highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards of other jurists who sit behind the bench. We'll see how that shakes out once once everybody gets back from the July 4th recess. Number seven. The Dobbs decision one year later. This Saturday marks one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Here's where things stand right now around the country. Since then, 14 states now have a full ban on abortions, some with exceptions for rape and incest. Georgia has a gestational limit of six weeks. Nebraska's is 12 weeks. And for now, Arizona and Florida have one at 15 weeks. Utah is at 18 weeks and North Carolina is at 20 weeks. About Half of the states in the country are expected to try to enact bans on abortion or gestational limits on the procedure. In some of these states, abortion remains legal for now as courts determine whether these bans can take effect. 
Abortion does remain legal in the rest of the country in these other states, and many states have added new protections since the Dobbs decision. Uh, there, there are a number of different uh, lawmakers both bemoaning the Dobbs decision and praising the Dobbs decision, obviously pretty much down party lines uh, over these last couple of days. And President Biden later today uh, will make remarks on the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision. And that's your debrief for this week, everybody. With the debrief behind us now, let's take our first of two deep dives here on this episode of the DC Debrief. This week, the Biden administration welcomed the prime minister of India to the White House, and it's a move that has been panned in some circles. And joining me to talk a little bit about what this meeting, uh, what the White House hopes this meeting will do and some of the reaction to it is Erfan Nurudin, a non-resident senior fellow in the South Asian Center at the Atlantic Council. Mr. Nurudin, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's start off here with the basic question, and that is, why did the Biden administration decide that the time is right now to welcome Prime Minister Modi to the White House? It's the first time an Indian prime minister has been invited for a state dinner since 2009. Prime Minister Modi has continued a policy of being friendly with the United States and deepening a partnership between the two countries that both recognize as potentially a major strategic partnership that could be definitive in the 21st century, especially as both of them recognize that China is a growing concern, a lot of opportunity where China is concerned, but definitely a lot of concern, and that they think that they are stronger together. So against that backdrop, you have a prime minister who has now been in office for nine years. Um, he's a, he goes up for re-election in 2024. And his predecessor had had a state visit. And I think the Biden administration wanted to make sure that they afforded him with a similar honor to recognize the strong partnership of the two countries. And of course, to do so before India and eventually the United States are in full re-election campaign mode. So I think the window for getting that done was increasingly tight and they managed to squeeze it in now. Well, you mentioned that he's going to be up for re-election next year, same as, as President Biden. Um, what do Prime Minister Modi's prospects look like in terms of getting re-elected? India is a parliamentary system, and so unlike President Biden, you know, the party goes to uh, the polls, and if the party has the largest number of seats, they get to choose their leader, which would be Mr. Modi. As of right now, a year ahead, uh, all indications are that the BJP, the, which is the Bharatiya Janta Party, the Indian People's Party, uh, Mr. Modi's party, is likely to be the largest party once again. There is no organized opposition to it. It is very Mr. Modi himself is personally incredibly popular, and the party has a strong record that they're proud of. There will be much opposition. I mean, India is a very vibrant democracy, very competitive elections, and, you know, we can't predict perfectly, but the indications right now is that Mr. Modi would come back for a third term. And the question really is sort of whether he's got a very big majority once again, or whether he has to govern in a coalition. You mentioned China just a, a second ago as one of the main factors for the Biden administration welcoming Prime Minister Modi to the White House at this point. What is, do you think they're trying to send a message to China? And if so, what do you think that message is? All visits of this level are sending messages all around the world, obviously, right? And China is paying attention. They recognize and would undoubtedly 
be noting a stronger, tighter defense relationship between the United States and India. Their concerns are less about India. I think Chinese strategists think that they've got a pretty significant military and economic advantage over India. But India coming more firmly into the American orbit, and in particular, a stronger defense relationship, means that America now has assets to the west of China, in addition to the long investments in Japan and South Korea and in the Pacific. For China, that makes it more vulnerable because now it has to counter the United States you know, both on the West and in the East. And China is a very large country, so that's logistically quite difficult. So I think what the Chinese are going to be paying attention to is what actually is in the substance of the announcements made. We are expecting announcements to be made about defense production happening in India, maybe some technology transfer. I don't think they're going to be too put off by the rhetoric and by the pomp and uh, circumstance, right? I mean, the glitz and glamour that a company has stated visitors, fine, okay, you did that. But what exactly are the brass tacks? What are you talking about? And I think anything that's far more about the United States having a deeper defense relationship, one that goes beyond simply, hey, this is a country we want to be pals with, right? But really selling, are they going to be selling the top hardware? Are they going to be actually doing more joint military exercises? That's what China's paying attention to. From the United States' perspective, I would argue that the main audience for this is actually India. It's about reaffirming to India that the future for India should go through the United States because the other goal over here is to slowly move India away from a dependence on Russian weapons. And so, you know, the focus is China because that's the future, but the past affects the future as well. (laughs) And the last year has reminded the United States that for all of the improvements in the relationship between India and the United States, India remains a staunch friend and partner to Russia. It has not been really part and parcel of the American-led sanctions against Russia for the war in Ukraine. It has held against any overt condemnation of the war. It refuses to refer to the war as a war, preferring all sorts of other euphemisms. And I think the United States wants to really roll out the red carpet and say, hey, if you want to be a great power in the 21st century, you have to be in our camp. You can't sort of you know, sit on the fence and also play nice with Russia when it's convenient. Yeah, it sounds like what you're describing is a real opportunity for the United States to make inroads with perhaps their two chief rivals, the the, the two countries that are causing the most concern, angst, agita among uh, American officials. And it sounds as though, I mean, India's population growth also is expected to surpass China, I think I read in, in the next few years as well. So can, can, do you sense that as well, that there's a there's an opportunity here for the United States to make inroads with these two nations? Absolutely. Done right, the U.S.-India relationship is as close to a complete game changer on the world stage as any other, right? We know the main players. We know China is what it is. The United States is what it is. We know that NATO and Russia are what they are. The wild card, if you would, is India, which has long been recognized with a large population for its economic potential, for the fact that it is a large military. But it has not declared its intentions, as it were, right? It has Mm -hmm. always prided itself once upon a time. They called it non-alignment. Now they refer to it as multi-alignment. Anything the United States can do to bring India off that fence more and more over to the United States adds a huge wildcard, a huge free agent, if you would, uh, to the mix and, you know, changes the dynamics of the global competition. 
But the key to making that happen is for the United States to slowly begin to ratchet up the pressure on India to say, we are happy to play it, play the long game. We're happy to sort of provide you the ego strokes at a state visit is. We're happy not to talk about some of the awkward issues of democracy and human rights mm-hmm. in your country. But all of that comes because you are going to show us that you are as serious about the relationship as we are. You're going to start buying more American weapon systems. You're going to stop buying Russian weapon systems. You're going to start doing more trade with the United States. And I think what we should be paying attention to is not getting distracted by some of the legitimate criticisms of you know the optics of hosting the prime minister at a time when the country is under a lot of criticism for democratic backsliding, mm-hmm. but focus really on whether that trade-off is worthwhile. What does the United States get in exchange for this. And I think on that one, the Biden administration has been vague on the details. We'll know a lot more by the end of this weekend. And then I think we can really assess whether the relationship is all that we hope it will be or whether it's a lot of glitz and glamour and rhetoric, Mm -hmm. but not so much substance. I did want to dig into just a little bit what you mentioned with regard to the democratic reforms or the the human rights violations that uh, many are upset about. And, and one of the reasons why there is some pushback to the Biden administration welcoming, welcoming Prime Minister Modi to the White House does have to do uh, with, with with some of those issues. I know Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib said she will boycott um, any of the meetings that the prime minister is going to have with members of Congress. He's expected to deliver a speech to a uh, joint session uh, this week as well. What is your reaction to why, I guess more to the point, why are some against the U.S. opening their arms to India in this way? India is a complicated country, but one of its great strengths historically has been a commitment to uh, diversity of religions, ethnicities, languages, uh, right? Like the United States, it prides itself on unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anything that has undermined that religious tolerance has always engendered criticism. This is not unique to Mr. Modi. Previous governments has, have also toyed with some versions of religious polarization as an electoral uh, strategy, and those have been criticized. India has had a very significant religious minority wage a pretty active insurgency in Punjab in the 1980s, right? So it's a long-standing set of issues. But under Mr. Modi, there is a perception that India's record on religious tolerance has really gone in the wrong direction. Attacks against India's largest minority, Muslims, but also under against its smaller minority groups, in particular Christians, have really ramped up. And the sense that the government machinery has been used to go after missionary organizations, Christian-linked organizations by cutting off access to funding, has really gotten a lot of people, a pretty diverse coalition, actually, not just your progressive Rashida Tlaib, but also mm-hmm. you know conservative congressmen for whom issues of religious freedom are very, very important, to say, hey, what's going on over here? You also have attacks on the press. You have attacks on civil society. I do not want to suggest that this is somehow officially sanctioned by the prime minister, but it is a society that shows some drift towards illiberalism in ways that would be of concern to anyone who supports human rights and democracy around the world. For Mr. Biden, this is especially awkward because he has made a big deal of saying that this is really about democracy against authoritarianism in the 21st century, that democracy will be a fundamental part of American foreign policy. He's tried to draw a distinction between his version of that foreign policy and his predecessor, who 
he would argue, was much more transactional about such issues. Well, if we take him at his word that democracy is going to be a hallmark of American foreign policy, then that invites, I think, legitimate questions about, well, is this the right optics for America? Earlier this week, Biden referred to uh, Premier Xi of China as a dictator. Right? Mm. Whether or not that's a yeah. right adjective, it once again just highlights that for this White House, democracy is a critical factor at a time when every international ratings organization has downgraded India's democracy uh, away from a liberal democracy to what is now called an electoral democracy. Uh, it does beg questions about what exactly does the Biden administration think of India's human rights record? And once again, to come back to an earlier theme, John, whether that trade-off on some of those more liberal values is made up by the tangible gains that the relationship gets because we get a stronger defense partnership. Last question for you. Uh, one of the United States' top allies in the war on terror back in the 2000s was Pakistan. And the relationship between India and Pakistan has always been one of the I guess, for lack of a better word, one of the one of the scarier uh, foreign policy issues, just because of how badly things could go should tensions between those two nations over Kashmir explode in, in ways that nobody wants. What would the United States cozying up to India and establishing defense, you know, a more established defense relationship with India? What, how would Pakistan receive that? Pakistan is, you know experiencing a pretty severe case of whiplash, right? I mean, they've gone from being America's favorite partner, more, you know, maybe not the most reliable partner, but definitely a very a strong partner for the war on terror. America's uh, war in Afghanistan was made possible by the logistics support that Pakistan afforded it. Pakistan would argue that it bore a brunt of some of the cross-border terror violence in, engaged by al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Pakistan was obviously a major defense partner, a lot of acquisitions. And so for Pakistan, this does two things. One is that it essentially reminds them that they are no longer that favored uh, partner. And in fact, are really kind of an afterthought. Uh, President Biden famously never called his counterpart, Prime Minister Imran Khan, the entire time Khan was in office, um, right, preferring to talk directly to the military establishment in Pakistan. Uh, so they recognize that, and that gets them very insecure vis-a-vis vis vis India, which, as you point out, John, is scary at a time when both countries have nuclear weapons and have you know, gone to war uh, before regularly. But the other factor is that it potentially pushes Pakistan deeper into a relationship with China, which, remember, also shares, via the Himalayan mountains, a border with both countries. Um, China has invested tremendously in Pakistan's infrastructure. The China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. There's a lot of economic activity of China, and China doesn't ask questions about Pakistan's human rights record. It doesn't ask questions about the civilian-military balance in the country. And more importantly, it sees a real uh, opportunity to undermine the Indian Ocean side of America's defense strategy by saying, hey, well, we can go around India and have a relationship with Pakistan. So I think what bears watching is whether the Biden administration can rebuild some of the bridges with Pakistan and say, hey, there's nothing that's going to move us away from India, but you don't have to see this as zero sum. We're happy to continue mm -hmm. to work with you. And just as importantly, what role does China begin to play in 
um, in Pakistan, because that again is you know one of those things that when we think of the 21st century chessboard is something we can't quite predict. But if a China-Pakistan relationship becomes very strong, it gives China land access to all of Central Asia. It gives China land access to the Middle East mm. in ways that uh, would tell us once again that the United States, by focusing on the Pacific, has given up pretty traditional areas of influence that could be for good, but at least it should not be unintentional. Well, it's a fascinating part of the world that the United States is obviously keying in on right now with Russia and with China, the the two main foes at the moment, the two main rivals for the United States at the moment. It's a it's it's a fascinating decision to to bring the Prime Minister of India here to the United States. Um, so I really appreciate you breaking this down for us, Erfan Nurudin, non-resident senior fellow in the South Asia Center at the Atlantic Council. Sir, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, just as there is every week, a lot going on in the world of politics right now, specifically with the 2024 presidential campaigns in full swing now, uh, but also so much going on on Capitol Hill and at the White House. And so joining me is a good friend of CBN News. He's the editor of Inside Elections, and he's a Faith Nation contributor, Nathan Gonzalez. Nathan, welcome back to, to CBN. How are you? Thanks for joining me. I'm doing well. Hey, anytime, anytime John calls to ask me to do this, I am in. I'm in for you. Well, I appreciate that. That that makes my heart sing a little bit there, Nathan. And uh, I did want to start off talking about uh, this meeting between uh, the, the the Prime Minister of India coming to the White House and, and President Biden. Um, we haven't seen the president do a lot of these kinds of news conferences that he's doing with, with Prime Minister Modi. It was a criticism of the first couple of years of his presidency. We're, we're seeing it a little bit more now during these last few state visits. And I know that there's been some controversy surrounding the prime minister's visit. I had a guest on um, earlier in the podcast talking about that a a little bit. But just can you get a sense for me, like a sense for me, what what the White House is hoping to accomplish, what the Biden administration is hoping to accomplish with having the prime minister come to Washington? Well, I think this is an opportunity. This is one of the things that should be good about Washington, meaning Washington gets a lot of criticism, but a state visit is is supposed to have the pomp and the circumstance and, and the press conferences and all the things that go along with it, that it, it, it's supposed to be good. There's always politics involved and, and it's never quite as clean and simple as that. But um, I think this is an opportunity for President to buy, for President Biden to show that he is the president, right? There are all of these candidates that are running against him. You know, a couple on the Democratic side, many more on the Republican side, and right now they don't have the opportunity to look as stately or as official or to be this head of state. Right now, President Biden can do it, and I think that's one of the uh, one of the objectives for events like this. I want to talk a little bit about the president's son, Hunter Biden. Obviously, the plea agreement that he reached uh, with prosecutors this week, um, Republicans, I know a lot of House Republicans having a big problem with this. How are they responding? How how are Republicans in general responding to the Hunter Biden plea? I mean, I'm sure I know that there's not just one answer for the whole party. Well, but in this case, they're actually, it's a pretty universal that Hunter Biden, this is a slap on the wrist. Uh, there are two different uh, there are two different justice, uh, you know, 
forms of justice or justice departments that this was a very light sentence for him, whereas the DOJ and, and other courts around the country are holding President Trump to a different standard, to a to a higher standard. Um, that, that It's almost universal. It's surprising that there's that level of unity when it comes to a political message. I think some of those things fall apart a little bit when you kind of, when you look at that argument specifically. I mean, this investigation into Hunter Biden did start under the Trump administration and the, with the Department of Justice and the Trump administration with a Trump appointed U.S. attorney. And President Biden chose to keep that U.S. attorney in place in order to uh, one of the things to complete this investigation. It, it would have looked pretty terrible if Biden had come into office promptly fired the U.S. attorney who was investigating his son, Republicans would be climbing the walls if that. But Biden, uh, I think, to his credit, chose to keep him keep him in place, the U.S. attorney in place, and to complete this five-year investigation. So, you know, the other thing that I, I Republicans, I think, are conflating some of the things that Hunter Biden was accused of and comparing them to what Trump is accused of and saying that Hunter got this lesser sentence, but Hunter was not accused of uh, holding, um, you know, classified documents at his house and then refusing to cooperate with the FBI and returning him. Yeah. You know, these are different, these are different cases that are, that we're, that we're looking at together. Well, and, and it, along those same lines too, you're talking about a plea deal here that Hunter Biden agreed to. Generally speaking, when there's a plea deal, there is a negotiation that takes place and a reduced sentence that takes place. And one wonders what would happen if Donald Trump negotiated a plea deal for the for the criminal counts that he's looking at or some of the criminal counts. Now, you may have you may have prosecutors that aren't interested in that with the president, with the former president, as opposed to with someone like Hunter Biden. But it is fair to to to, to say that in a plea deal, generally speaking, the sentences are brought down as a way to entice the defendant to agree to the plea deal. Right. And and we have to so on on one hand, we have to remember that the plea deal in the Hunter Biden case was offered by a Trump appointed U.S. attorney and agreed to by a Trump appointed U.S. attorney. Uh, but in the in the the cases with Trump, if he were to agree, if there was a plea deal offered and he would agree to something, that would mean he would have to admit guilt on something, right? It would, mm -hmm. it might be a lesser charge, but he would have to admit guilt. And that is not something that Trump does. He does, I mean, look back over the years of the things he said, going back into his administration, pretty sure some of the only things he has admitted to ever doing wrong was appointing Jeff Sessions as attorney general or things like <laughs> that. It's never around um, the, the other more serious charges that he is facing or will face, you know, in the case of the, the Georgia case that is still uh, somewhat unresolved. So this is the criminal investigation, and I think it's an open question. It seems that Hunter Biden's lawyer isn't sh – so he believes that the criminal case is over. It sounds as though the, the the prosecutors or the Justice Department is leaving the possibility that the case is open. Do we have any kind of a sense as to as to whether or not this case is closed now? I I am not – clear that yeah. that it's that it's completely closed but again we can look at this has been going on for 5 years they were not you know they were looking on on all sorts of avenues and aspects of this particular case these are the charges that they brought forward this is the agreement and the plea deal that Hunter and his attorney agreed to if there's new evidence then it should be investigated, right? If there are new mm -hmm. things that come up, Republicans think they have, you know, this tape or that tape or this document, then 
you know, that, that would be new. And, and I think it should, everyone who is potentially doing something wrong should be investigated. But uh, in terms of what has happened in the past, I, I would be surprised coming from a non-attorney, a non-legal perspective, I would be surprised if suddenly uh, Hunter is charged with, with other related things re- with regard to how he got the money. And that's a big thing with Republicans like, oh, well, mm-hmm. how did Hunter make this? How did he rack up this tax bill in the first place? I have to think that that was something that that the attorneys were looking into as they investigated this case. Right. And Republicans on the House Oversight Committee say their investigation into both Hunter Biden, but now it seems that's really widened and focusing on uh, these charges of bribery for then Vice President Biden, that those investigations will continue despite the, the criminal plea deal reached by, yeah. by Hunter Biden. And John, and one thing on that, and, and again, if people should be investigated. If they're doing something wrong or allegedly, yeah, let's find out if they're guilty or not. But remember one of the criticisms that Republicans have of the Trump cases is that, well, you can't prosecute him because he's a he's a, a candidate right now. He's a political opponent. You can't prosecute him. But yet it's okay if Republicans investigate then Vice President Biden, now President, now candidate Biden. But hey, you know, don't let hypocrisy get in the way of a good, of a good argument. There you go. Um, Earlier this week, Donald Trump sat down with Fox News' Brett Baer for a two-part interview that aired over the course of, of two nights. And they talked a lot about the documents situation, uh, about the 2020 election, about Ukraine, about a number of other things. And just wanted to get a sense from, you know, you're following the 2024 elections closely, the Republican primary field closely here. Have we seen what the Republican electorate, how they feel about the indictment, the aftermath following the indictment, some of these interviews that he's given, some of the things that he said, has it had any kind of an impact in the polling or where where you think the former president stands in terms of the folks who are trying to chase him down? Well, first, in the context of the Republican primary, right? The first step to getting elected president is winning the nomination. I've seen no evidence that this that the indictments, legal struggles are hurting Trump among primary voters. I think voters and the Republican politicians have largely rallied to his defense, uh, and I don't see that changing until proven otherwise. You know, for example, I don't think that adding on another set of indictments from Georgia is suddenly going to be the game changer that people are, they're defending him on these other cases, but Georgia, oh no, that that's a bridge too far. I, I <laughs> anticipate that it, that it would be in the same, in the same vein. Um, and also in the context of the primary, it's hard to see how he loses when some of his opponents are defending him on these charges or, or think mm-hmm. it's a witch hunt because he's ahead. He is the front runner. I would argue right. he's the incumbent in the primary race. And in order for another Republican to win, Trump has to come down. And if you're not going to make the case to voters about why the front runner should, uh, should not be the front runner, should not win, then he's going to win. And, and that is a very strange dynamic. Typically, John, if, if you're running in a campaign and your opponent is indicted, you should be rejoicing. You should be telling <laughs> anyone you want, you know, anyone who will listen about that. But that is not the case with Trump because um, these other 
candidates don't want to alienate his supporters. Right. And, and talk- there are some, there are some that are going after him here, though. I yeah. mean, we've I mean, seen Chris, Chris Christie, Christie, Asa Hutchinson, a couple of them. Sure, sure. Yeah. And Chris Christie is coming in hot. Right. I mean, he is. I, <laughs> yes. I don't expect him to be the nominee, but he's going to be he's going to have his make his case in, in any debate stage that has the two of them, Trump and Christie on it is going to be must watch television. Whether that message resonates, we'll have to figure out. And Christie, he's not going to have the resources of a, a Governor DeSantis or a Senator Tim Scott um, to make that case. He's going to have to largely do it in media interviews and in other creative ways. Uh, but right now, the other the front runners, the non-Trump front runners, aren't really making that direct case. They're trying to mm-hmm. they're trying to come at it the other way. But I, I also want to say though, in the general election, I think that the legal problems for Trump are a problem. That Republicans have a problem with independent voters, and even if even though indictments might be helping Trump among the base, it can't be helping with independent voters. They can't feel. Like, oh, let me trust this man with another four years in office. I, I, mm-hmm. It's a completely different calculation doing primary versus general election. We've also seen more candidates enter the field. Two more candidates have entered the field in, in recent days. You had Miami Mayor uh, Francis Suarez enter the race last week. And then this week you had former GOP Congressman Will Hurd uh, jump into the fray here. And so now at my last count, I think we're at 11 candidates, including Donald Trump, 10 challengers. And obviously it seems as though, like you just mentioned, somebody who's as well established with as much name recognition as Chris Christie, Mike Pence... Nikki Haley, these these folks are not getting out of the single digits and everybody knows who they are. And so I guess I'm curious, what is what is the rationale behind Will Hurd getting into the mix, behind Francis Suarez getting into the mix, Doug Burgum uh, running running for the White House? What what is their what kind of an kind of an effect? What are they hoping to accomplish here as they're jumping into the fray as well? Well, First, I I can't believe that you run for president unless you think there's a chance you're going to become a, you're going to be elected president. I mean, I think you have to at least believe that to some extent. That being said, there are other reasons to run. You want to you want to uh, champion a cause. You want to raise your own profile to potentially run for something else or do something else. Get another get another job just to have that be on a greater stage and platform and have that national name recognition, building that base. So there are, there are things you can do. You can lose in the right way. At the same time, I think a lot of Republicans who maybe want to turn the page, turn to a different chapter from Trump, have to be realizing that the more candidates that get into the race, the more likely we are headed down the 2016 path where multiple non-Trump candidates divided up the non-Trump electorate in, in, and allowed Trump to slowly kind of work his way methodically through uh, through the primary. But he starts further ahead than what he did. In 2016, Trump didn't have a majority of voters until maybe June, yeah. maybe the, the beginning of June. Uh, now, depending on the poll, Trump has a majority of Republican voter support, if not maybe just a little bit less. So he's starting this race far ahead of everybody else and everyone else is playing catch up. Let's talk about the president's reelection campaign because you know everybody's focused on the GOP and it certainly is the more interesting side to talk about because of all the candidates because more people keep jumping in and because we know who the Democratic nominee is going to be it's going to be Joe Biden barring something completely unforeseen over these next few months but it doesn't sound like it's going to be a traditional campaign it doesn't sound like there's going to be all kinds of rallies and he doesn't have to go campaign in Iowa New Hampshire South Carolina all these different early states where they're going to be primaries he doesn't 
doesn't have to, he can kind of sit all of that out. But over the next few months, what do you think his campaign is going to look like? The best, one of the best things uh, Biden can do for his reelection to being president is to be a good president. (laughs) I mean, to to show that he's doing a good job. You know, let's put it a different way. If you want to continue doing your job, you know, prove that you're doing a good job right now and, and, and hope that he is rewarded with four more years and with with another term. Obviously, one of the major fights of this campaign will be whether he's doing a good job or not. But I think the case that President Biden and Democrats will make is that things are getting better. Sure, things may not be ideal, not where everyone wants, but things are getting better. That's part one of the message. Part two of the message is, do you really want to go back? Do you really want President Trump back in charge for four more years? And what, you know, do you trust him? And this is going to be Gosh, John, the how, how pessimistic do we want to be on this? You know, this will kind of be a fight between who is the most popular of the least popular candidates, the mm-hmm. least popular nominees. And that is and Democrats are it's a little bit of a risky proposition heading in, you know, getting behind Biden in this reelection race, because they are going to have to rely on a group of voters who don't think Biden is doing a particularly good job. They're concerned about the direction of the country, and yet they are—they're uh, not comfortable with the alternative that Republicans are offering. That—that that, this is the electorate that helped Democrats overperform in the midterm elections. They didn't like—they—they they thought Biden was doing a poor job, concerned about security and all those things, but they weren't comfortable voting for Republican candidates. So that's where nominating Trump is probably Biden's best case scenario because it distracts. Or from Biden's agenda, or it, um, it, it he is he is so polarizing that it gives Biden a chance, even if Biden isn't popular. I wanted to finish and ask you about something that you tweeted this week about newspapers and op-eds that I thought was a really interesting thought. And kind of along the lines of, you know, we see Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, other newspapers, they they publish these op-eds from from people. And you tweeted something about not think, thinking that newspapers really shouldn't be doing that anymore. Can you kind of flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, this is, I don't often get on the, get on my stump, uh, give my stump <laughs> speech, but this is one of them. I am, as a member of the media, I'm concerned about the lack of trust in the media. Lots of, we could have 12 podcast episodes on this, but you know, we have yeah. two minutes. Uh, but yeah. what I think would help is if newspapers and media outlets stop endorsing candidates and stop issuing editorials. These newspapers do have, there is a wall. People may not believe it, but there is a wall between the people who are writing editorials, who are endorsing candidates and the reporters who are reporting the news and writing the stories and those editors. They don't, they don't talk about those things. There, there is a wall there, but I believe that most people don't, don't believe that that really exists. That if the editorial page is endorsing a candidate, then the reporters must be in the tank for that candidate. And so I think it would be easier, more clear if newspapers just did away with that tradition. I understand it's been 150 years. The newspapers have been, yeah. have been doing this. I just think it's, it is for a, uh, an era of the past. I'm not convinced that editorials really convince a lot of people or endorsements, media endorsements really help. I think it really, it continues to hurt or feed the distrust in the media that already exists. 
Yeah, and in the age of social media and and the internet, all you have to do is go post a video on your Twitter feed or your Facebook page and and get your message out that way. It does seem even an antiquated way of making your opinion known in right. in, in this stage. I mean, back in those days when when really all you had were newspapers and the three networks, you know, that was a good way of getting your message out. But now you have so there's so many more ways to just speak directly to people. Right. Yeah. You don't. Newspapers are not the gatekeeper that they that they once were. There are other ways to get familiar with the candidates and and newspapers should be doing reporting and analysis and and helping voters get to know the candidates. I think just putting that thumb on the scale and saying, oh, you should support so and so for Congress or president or even mayor or city council. I, I just think it's it does more harm than good. Well, you guys can catch Nathan Gonzalez every week on Faith Nation on CBN, which can be found on our website, cbnnews.com. And you can also read his work at Inside Elections. Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. No problem. We'll see you next time. All right, now let's get to the closer. A Pentagon accounting mistake will apparently free up another $6.2 billion for the Pentagon to give military aid to Ukraine. Pentagon spokeswoman Sabrina Singh explained what happened at a media briefing earlier this week. In a significant number of cases, services used replacement costs rather than net book value, thereby overestimating the value of the equipment drawn down from U.S. stocks and provided to Ukraine. We have confirmed that for FY23, the final calculation is $3.6 billion, and for FY22, it is $2.6 billion for a combined total of $6.2 billion. In other words, they put too high a price tag on the equipment that they were sending to Ukraine, and they didn't realize that it didn't actually cost as much as they thought. Let me give you a real-world example of this that actually happened to me this week. So uh, I have a 2006 Toyota Sienna. This car is old. <laughs> it's got 165,000 miles on it, but uh, it's, it's one of our two cars. And uh, I had basically every indicator light flashing on the dashboard. And I thought for sure this was going to be something that was going to cost uh, a bunch of money. So we had set aside in our budget, let's just use a number, um, let's say $600, right? So we had $600 set aside in our budget to get this car taken care of. I was I was worried it was going to cost more than that. So I was earmarking in my mind so a larger number, but we went with 600 to start. Took it in there. And lo and behold, it was just a couple of hoses that had some rips in them that needed to be replaced. I was shocked when, when the guy on the other line, the, the auto mechanic said, it's going to be like $95 in total and and everything else with the car is fine. So I originally had $600 set aside in my car maintenance uh, folder my in my budget to to go towards this to go towards this thing and it only ended up costing a little under $100. So now I have $500 that can stay in that folder for the next time I need to make a, a car repair. That's kind of what's happening here, right? They overbud. They they thought that this thing, that the, this equipment that they were going to send to Ukraine, actually cost more than it really did. So now they have more money freed up that can go towards sending more military hardware, more equipment to Ukraine. And so it's. They did say that this money would go back. It would stay in the Ukraine folder. If you're thinking about a Pentagon budget, let's just call this a, the Ukraine folder, right? It's not going to go be used for other things. It's going to stay in the Ukraine folder and go towards funding uh, the the Ukraine's defense and the military hardware, the different things the Pentagon is doing to to help out Ukraine. So um, it's certainly better than the alternative. If you got to make an accounting mistake, it's better to actually figure realize. Oh, I've got more money than I thought I did. That's 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 much better than the alternative of, oh, 
oh, we overspent, which I'll be perfectly honest and transparent with you. I've been on the other side of that one, too. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. Please make sure to tell a friend or family member about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, again, please leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And we will talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief.